reading from Mark's Gospel, starting at chapter 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Thanks, Philippa. Please will you um, keep Bibles open uh, there at Mark chapter 10. And I want to draw your attention to the question that Jesus asks, asks in verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? I think it's a fascinating question for a few different reasons. Partly because in the context of the conversation Jesus is having, it feels like a really obvious question to answer. Um, blind guy meets guy with healing powers. What do you want me to do for you? It doesn't take a sort of major leap of the imagination to guess what he might want Jesus to do for him. We'll think a bit more about that in a minute. Partly it's an interesting question because of who is asking it. If Jesus is who he claims to be, and we'll think about this more in a minute as well, if he is who he claims to be, that is our creator, that is the absolute ruler of the universe, then the idea that he would come to human beings and ask the kind of question that someone on a reception desk might ask, or the kind of question that a servant asks a master, or a shop assistant asks a customer, or Siri asks an iPhone user, is incredible. Partly it's an interesting, interesting question, because the way that we answer it reveals quite a lot um, about us. So imagine G Jesus asking that question to you. Question verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder what you would say in response to that. Um, I actually, I just asked a handful of people that question this week um, at a couple of the talks um, I went along to and got an interesting range of answers. What would you like Jesus to do for you? Someone said, make it a bit easier to believe in you. Um, another, tell your followers to stop being so hateful. Another, help me get this problem sheet over the line. Uh, another, nothing thanks, um, I've got things covered. Maybe you resonate with one of those or more. And it's just a little thought experiment, but each of those questions reveals something about the person who gave it. Uh, sorry, each of those answers reveals something about the person who gave it. Um, it reveals what that person thinks about Jesus. Uh, he is a helper. He's an affirmer. He's an object of investigation. He's an optional extra. And it reveals something about what the person who gave that response thinks about themselves, that they're an impartial inquirer. They're a sufferer in need of help. They are self-sufficient. The way you answer the question reveals uh, those two things. And that's not just a Jesus thing. That's not just applicable to when Jesus asks that kind of a question. What you ask a person for, regardless of who the person is, I think, reveals who you think they are and who you think you are. Um, I wonder if I'm the only person in the room who's done the thing where you're in a shop and you ask 
someone who you think works in the shop for help. Um, and um, yeah, that happens. Um, for me, it was in Ikea. And um, I was looking for um, a small sort of drying rack. You know the one where it's kind of, it's like a, ha uh, 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 what do you call it, a clothes hanger, and then there's pegs that hang off it that you can dry your socks on, one of those. Anyway, in Ikea, that is called a schlib. And um, I was uh, looking for a schlib and couldn't find, couldn't find one. And there was a guy in a bright yellow T-shirt. Who goes to Ikea in a bright yellow T-shirt and doesn't expect this to happen? Um, so anyway, I asked him if he could tell me whether I had already gone past the schlibs. And uh, he said something along the lines of, I'm sorry, mate, I don't know what you're talking about. And um, ushered his children, who I hadn't noticed prior to that, <laughs> away from me. And one of the problems with IKEA is that once you've done something like that, you're both following the same winding path all the way through to the warehouse. And so you keep seeing each other and he keeps telling his children not to look that weird man in the eye. But in that interaction, I revealed what I thought about myself in that situation, a man looking for a schlib. And I revealed what I thought about the guy in the yellow t-shirt in that situation. He works here. He can help me. Um, I just happen to be uh, stunningly mistaken about that half of it. It reveals, doesn't it, who you think you are, who you think the person that you're asking is. When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Um, our answer reveals quite a lot about what we believe about him and what we believe about ourselves. And Christians actually have always taught that those two areas, what we think about God and what we think about ourselves, are the two most important things to know about. Who's God? Who am I? So this question, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? It cracks open the two biggest issues, actually, in a person's life. And it is a question that Jesus asks of you today. And the way that you answer it is of ultimate importance. So what we're going to do for a few minutes is uh, look together at what happened when Jesus asked that question to a blind man uh, in the city of Jericho 2,000 years ago. And if you and I will grasp what that man grasped, if we will see what the blind man saw, um, then it could change everything. Now, you'll notice um, that uh, from page uh, 1015 that we are jumping into chapter 10 of a 16-chapter uh, book. And so we're jumping in quite a long way through the story. So a uh, little bit of catch-up. Mark's Gospel is one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. We can talk about that a bit in the Q&A if that's helpful. He spent the first half of uh, the Gospel of this book that he's written establishing who Jesus is. And he's been saying he's the Messiah, the Son of God. That, he says that in the very first verse of the book, actually. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is, he is making the cosmically huge claim that God himself has come into the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he has come as king, one with all authority to rule over everything. The Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures, had long looked forward to the coming of God's king. It referred to him as the Messiah. It means the anointed king. And Mark has been saying, Jesus is him. It's happened. The, God has come into his world as king. And if you've been, again, listening to any of these talks over the last week or come into contact with Christianity much before, um, those are the sorts of things that, that you might have been hearing, that God has not stood far off from the mess of our world, but has come into it. Um, to sort things out. Then the question becomes, okay, well, if that's who Jesus is, 
then what is it that he's come to do? And this is the thing that um, uh, over the last little while, as we've looked at Mark's gospel at the 11.45 service, we've seen Jesus' Jesus disciples keep getting this wrong, what Jesus has come to do. They read some of the stuff in the Old Testament and had begun to assume that when this Messiah figure comes, he is basically going to serve their agenda. Um, They were living subject to Roman imperial power, um, and they absolutely hated it. And so they assumed, right, well, when the Messiah comes, he's obviously he's on our team, and um, he's going to be a military sort of leader who's going to boot out the Romans and, and liberate us. So if Jesus had said to some of his followers at the time, what do you want me to do for you? The obvious answer would have been, well, you're the Messiah. Like, do messiah things. Boot out the Romans. Obviously, we'll just march on Jerusalem and get rid of them. Actually, something a little bit like that does happen in verse 36, if you just glance back across the page there. Um, Jesus does ask some of his followers, what do you want me to do for you? And they give a stupid answer about um, glory and their positions in glory. And they're thinking in military terms, I think. Now, this is um, all a more or less interesting history lesson, but like, what does it have to do with us? I assume relatively few of us here are thinking, the thing that I really want from Jesus is for him to lead military conquest um, against my enemies. Perhaps some are, but I think relatively few. True. Um, But I think that what's happening here is just an extension of a much more common position, which is that God's job is basically to serve my agenda. Um, It's to support support and affirm my choices in life, to, to help get me ahead in life to bring about the political causes that I back. Jesus is basically power to my elbow. He's on my team. I think that's a a relatively common position. Now meet instead the blind man who saw things very clearly. Um, Let me read from verse 46. Uh, Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Now imagine yourself into this blind man's experience. Um, He's living in a world well before um, disability benefit, well before accessible workplaces. Um, He is on the margins of society in in every sense. And he must be so used, don't you think, to hearing footsteps coming towards him and sitting up to, to beg for some food or money or something and then just hearing the footsteps get quieter as he's ignored. How often, how many times a day must that have happened to him? But he kind of hears things sitting by the roadside. He, he hears people chatting about stuff and he picks up that there's this guy called Jesus and he picks up some of the stuff that people are saying about him. And then he hears a great big racket going by as people crowd around Jesus and he thinks, oh, this must be him. Um, this, is, this is my opportunity. And so he starts to shout for Jesus' attention. And um, the disciples, the crowd, they try and shut him up, but he's, he, he's not having any of that. Jesus hears him and stops. See that in verse 49? Isn't that quite something? Think of like all of the noise of the crowd and general racket of life. And think about who Jesus is. He's, he's a king on the way to his capital. And yet he hears the voice of this outcast, this nobody, and he stops. And he says, call him. He's the one I'm really interested in. 
And they have a conversation, um, at the end of which, in verse 52, immediately Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Immediately is quite a word there, isn't it? It's as as though someone's just turned the lights on and everything has changed. He spent his whole life in darkness and it is replaced instantaneously by sight. And he follows Jesus, which is a key theme of this part of Mark. Bartimaeus is, is a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So let's zoom in on his response to Jesus's question. Verse 51, as we know, Jesus has asked him this question, what do you want me to do for you? And let's zoom in and see the two things that he asks Jesus for. He asks him for two things, mercy and sight. I'm going to think about each of those just for a minute or two. Firstly, mercy. He asks for that twice at volume. Um, Verse 47, he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They tell him to shut up. Verse 48, he does it louder still. Son of David, have mercy on me. Remember, what you ask somebody for reveals what you think about yourself and what you think about them. When he's asking for mercy, what does that reveal about who he thinks Jesus is? Well, he calls him the son of David. Um, That's a loaded title. It's to do with the Messiah thing that we talked about. David was a king in the Old Testament to whom God promised one day one of your descendants is going to rule over my people forever. So when Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David, he has recognized that Jesus is that one. Um, He's the one who's going to rule over God's people forever. He's the supreme one. Bartimaeus is recognizing that he is in the presence of gravitas on gravitas, uh, the supreme royal son with all authority. That's who he thinks Jesus is. Who does he think he is? Well, what does mercy imply? In what situations does somebody ask for mercy? Isn't it sort of your friend when they realize that they've really wronged you and they can't really excuse it and they just need you to forgive them? That's mercy. Or it's the conquered people um, recognizing that they can't possibly win the war and they just need to surrender. It's when you realize that somebody has got power over you and the right to do whatever they like with it, and you just have to ask them to be kind to you. It's your only option. Bartimaeus thinks that Jesus is is the great king of everything, and he thinks that he is very small and very undeserving and very needy. That's what he's saying, I think, when he asks for mercy. That's the implication. And Mark is saying that he is absolutely right. In fact, that that is the position that everybody is in before God. Obviously, if there is a God, then all of us is small and powerless in comparison. That much, I guess, is obvious. But more than that, if there is a good and just God, then all of us needs his mercy and his forgiveness. If he's good and he's just and he's fair, I guess, like, when we look at the world, we we want justice to be a thing. It's hard not to look at Ukraine and think, I want justice to be a thing. And perhaps there have been you know, things in your life, things that have happened to you that make you think, I, I, I want justice for this. I've not been fairly treated. And you're right to want that. When I look at my own heart, I realize that I am, to a certain extent, a victim of the mess of the world. 
But at the same time, I am a perpetrator of the mess of the world. I am complicit in the mess that the world is in. And all the more so if it's God's world um, and I've lived in it without reference to him and failed to acknowledge him. And if that were the case, then therefore what I need from him is mercy even more than I need justice. My need, your need, just like Bartimaeus' need, is to say to Jesus, have mercy on me. Um, I surrender. I recognize how great you are. I recognize that I'm small and that I've done wrong. Please have mercy. Uh, we mentioned, um, I mentioned the notices, the, the search that happened on a Monday night. And uh, there's a few of us from St. Ebbs go along to that. And I, I go, and I was having a, a chat um, at one stage last term, I think, no, earlier on this term, with um, a couple of students who were very sharp, um, neither of them Christians yet, and they were just talking about this idea, the idea that if there's a God, the right response to him is, is surrender, is, is to ask for mercy, to come to him empty-handed. And one of them said, well, why would I do that? Like, what are the benefits to me of surrendering to God? And before I could say anything, useful or otherwise, the, the other guy, he said, well, as long as you're asking that question, you haven't really surrendered, have you? Um, you're still negotiating. You surrender when you realize you don't actually have any other options. And in a way, that's Charlie's story, isn't it, that we were hearing? When the truth becomes clear and leaves you with no other options, then surrender's the one left. It's a scary thing, and vulnerable thing but the wonderful news is that Jesus came not to crush not to exploit the authority and the power that he has over us he came not to crush but actually amazingly to be crushed for us he comes as the one with all authority and what he does with it is lay it down and pick up a cross and he's nailed to it for our sake Look up with me to verse 45, just before the bit that Philippa read. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man, which is a similar kind of title to Son of David, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is how mercy is possible. Jesus died to bear in himself the justice that we deserve. Um, he absorbed it all so that mercy might flow to us. Um, if you ask Jesus for mercy, you're not left wondering, is, is he going to? Will he be kind to me? Have I caught him on a good day? You're not left wondering and hoping because he's died on the cross, which means that to all who come to him asking for mercy, it flows straight into your heart and it sets you free. Um, we sometimes um, here at Ebbs sing an old Welsh hymn that says, on the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. That is what verse 45 secures for Bartimaeus and for anybody who comes to Jesus. Actually, it's been my experience. Um, in my case, I grew up in a Christian home, but I think probably it was as a teenager realizing properly that, that what I need from Jesus is his mercy. I think I sort of just slipped, nobody had told me this really, but I just slipped into the thought that, well, what I need to do is, is impress God and, and stay in his good books. And, you know, he's basically a head teacher in heaven 
And if I do enough good things, he'll reward me with heaven and happiness and whatnot. But I gradually realized that I didn't actually live up to my own standards, let alone any that God might set. What I needed was mercy, and I received it because of Jesus' death on the cross to bear the consequences for my failing. I received it, um, and it was freeing, and it's still freeing. I don't need to impress God. I don't need to stay on his good side. I just rely on his mercy. What do you want me to do for you? Asks Jesus. Maybe you are still in the category that we talked a bit about earlier of, um, I'm actually fine, thanks. Like, my life's fine. I'm happy. All good. I wonder what Bartimaeus would say to that if he were here. I think he might say something a bit like, have you definitely appreciated who Jesus is? Creator, King, God. And have you definitely appreciated who you are? Someone made by him, loved by him, but turned away from him. It might, might well be that you know, you're here and you're not actually convinced that those things are true. Um, and that's fair enough. And we, we'd love to help you think that through. Um, we think there's really good evidence for those things being true. Um, and we can chat about them afterwards or, as I mentioned, the search is a great place to come. Maybe you're someone who feels, well, I'm just too bad for God. Like, I've got no problem thinking of myself as puny and undeserving. That is exactly how I think of myself. Wretched. But so much so that I just don't think I could ever really get involved with church and God and religion and all of that stuff. What would Bartimaeus say? I didn't offer Jesus anything. I just asked him for mercy and he was really kind and he was merciful to me. I asked, he gave, I'm new. That's basically it. Jesus says, come, come to him. He says he loves you. He says there's floodgates of mercy ready to spring open uh, to anybody who comes to him and you can do that today. What do you want me to do for you? Have mercy, was Bartimaeus' answer and he received it. Um, Will you come to him and ask for that today? So mercy is the core of what Bartimaeus wanted from Jesus. But just as we finish, there is one other fairly notable thing that he asked for from Jesus. Sight. Um, Sight. I mean, this is the more obvious one, in a sense, isn't it? Um, Obviously, when Bartimaeus was asking Jesus for sight, he wanted sight. Like, nothing's complicated about that, is it? He meant that physically, literally. He is physically blind, and at the end of the conversation, he can physically see. Um, It is a miracle. Um, It's a miracle that confirms who Jesus is. Um, It's a miracle that pledges that one day all blindness will end. And um, I would love to unpack all of those things, but um, uh, time is getting away, so we can talk talk about them afterwards. Um, But there is another thing going on besides the physical miracle and the physical seeing that happens in this story. Um, In this bit of Mark's account of Jesus' life, sight has got a kind of double meaning. Um, it means both physical sight and sight in the sense of getting it, like seeing what's going on, understanding. Um, if you wouldn't mind just flicking back um, two pages with me um, to page 1011, chapter 8, verse 18. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and they're really, well, I'll read from verse 17. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? This is the thing they've just been going on about. Do do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears 
but fail to hear. And then straight after that, in, uh, you see there, chapter 8, verse 22, um, he heals another blind guy. And this time he does it in two stages. And so there's a point at which this blind guy can see a bit, but also kind of not quite. And um, that's Jesus saying to his disciples, this is you. You, like, you, you kind of you see a bit, but you don't, you don't really see. You don't quite get it. And evidently that was still the case when James and John asked their stupid question uh, that we talked about in chapter 10, verse 38, back in, on page 1015, um, when they were asking for glory and seats at the left and right. Like, they, they see a bit, they get a bit about who Jesus is, but, but not quite. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, he sees absolutely clearly. And so the point is that Jesus can make you see things clearly, um, spiritually. He, he will change how you see him and how you see the world so that you see straight. Uh, that's been the testimony of Jesus' followers down the centuries. Um, the Apostle Paul, who uh, was a very, very early hater of Christianity, um, became a Christian. And the language that he used was, uh, it, he spoke about scales falling from his eyes. Um, we're going to sing afterwards a hymn that was written by a guy from the 18th century who had previously been a slave trader and then became a Christian. He said, uh, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So Jesus is able to change how you see things. Following Jesus means that he'll give you a whole new way of seeing the world, a radically new perspective on everything. And the claim is that it is a truer perspective. Um, It's not a kind of um, you know, ignore the evidence around you, I'm going to tell you how things really are. But it's a truer perspective. It's an opening of eyes. It's seeing things as they really are. For example, when you trust Jesus, you start seeing the world not as random and, and, and kind of just having emerged from cosmic soup, but as God's, as a theater for his glory, as something that's very broken, yes, but that's on its way to restoration. You start seeing the church not as an outdated institution with, with nice buildings, I suppose, but as your family, as, as Jesus' community that he's brought together, the most significant community in the world. You start seeing yourself not as your own, but as his own, and his treasured possession uh, with objective beauty and dignity and purpose. You start seeing your stuff as his stuff, Um, which he's given to you to look after for a while um, and to use for his purposes in the world. Uh, You start seeing work just as a good gift to do your best with, to enjoy, and not to feel that you've got to live for. You start seeing suffering and sadness as real and heavy and serious, but not ultimate, not reasons to despair. You start seeing Jesus as the center of everything, You start seeing his death as the most significant moment in history. Have you noticed this with some of your Christian friends? Have you noticed that they they just seem slightly different? They just seem to see things a bit differently and prioritize things a little bit differently and just respond a little bit differently to the world? It's not that they've been brainwashed. It's not that they've got someone at church telling them they must do that if they want to be in God's good books or go to heaven or whatever. It's because they've received Jesus' mercy and he is changing how they see things. 
And like Bartimaeus, it's because they've made the free, joyful, grateful choice to follow Jesus. And that's what he'll do for you. Um, In fact, the two things that Bartimaeus asks for, mercy and sight, they come as a package. They they, they come together. I, I assume, by the way, that's why Jesus asked Bartimaeus the question in verse 51. Um, when he asks him, what do you want me to do for you in this seemingly fairly obvious context? I think what he's asking him is, are you ready for a whole new life? Because mercy and sight come together as a package. If you receive mercy, it will change you. Um, It'll change how you see things. It'll, It'll give you a whole new life. And one that'll involve sacrifice and costly choices and sometimes painful ones. But the story of Christians down the ages, and in this room, actually, is that that life is, is truly life. We heard a little bit about it from Charlie. Um, do chat to him more about it. Chat to me. Chat to the person that you came with um, more about that life. It is on offer today. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? If we will see who Jesus is today, the, the kind, merciful king of all, if we'll see who we are, people loved by him who have done wrong, then I think what we will do is we will say to him, I would like two things, please. Mercy. I've got nothing to offer you. No leverage over you. No bargaining power. Um, You are God and I am not and I need mercy. And I want sight. I want you to help me see things as you see them and as they really are. Maybe you've got questions. Um, Please ask them afterwards. One of the wonderful things about Christianity is that we believe in a God who stepped into our world, and so we can ask questions, we can examine, we can look into things. Um, Nobody here, I take it, is interested in blind faith. This is not about blind faith. This is about seeing. It's the opposite. Um, And the the search we mentioned on Mondays as well. We've all got questions. Uh, We all always will. Um, But maybe you're here this afternoon and you think, well, actually, of course I've got questions, but I think I know enough about Jesus to know that I want him. You 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 hear him ask you, what do you want me to do for you? And you think, well, I I see who he is, and I see a bit of who I am. What I want from him is mercy and sight. It may be that that's you today, and it would just be really good to mark that um, as as a significant moment. Um, And so if that is you, um, I'm going to pray now. And it's the sort of prayer that you might want to pray if you want to receive mercy um, and sight from Jesus. And if you do, do, um, you know, mention that to me or to somebody who you came along with at the end. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord and God, I recognize who you are my kind, loving maker and the one with the right to rule over everything, including me. I recognize who I am, precious and dignified in your image, but a sinner, someone who's turned away from you. Thank you so much for your son who came and died to serve me and pay the price for me. Please have mercy on me and please give me sight so that I can follow him. Amen.